Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now let's dig in. Hi, bed crimers. Today I have a few tidbits to share about Brian Koberger's personality, information that will further refine our understanding of what he was like as a student at Washington State University. One of Koberger's classmates at WSU, a guy named Ben Roberts, recently told the Idaho Statesman that Koberger was, and I quote, gregarious and outgoing in class. Roberts also described him as being, and I quote, a little more eager than others to present himself to people. This description seems to contradict others we've heard about Brian Koberger. Descriptions of him being more quiet, more placid, having a blank stare that kind of creeps people out. Remember the female students at the University of Idaho who claim that Koberger was in the student union staring at them to the point where they felt uncomfortable and they got up and went outside to have their lunch? Per Ben Roberts, Koberger would sit front and center in class and participate in every discussion. There was only one exception, and that was, you guessed it, you may know it, the case out of Moscow, Idaho, where Madison Mogan, Zana Kornodal, Kaylee Gonsalves, and Ethan Chapin lost their lives. For that discussion, Koberger, according to Roberts, was completely silent. I'm sure if Koberger is the perpetrator, he would not have risked saying anything for fear of letting out a detail that had not been publicly disclosed about the crime, and or for fear of appearing maybe just a little too interested, too animated, too excited by it. You'd think Koberger's sudden change of behavior for that particular topic would have sent up red flags to everyone in that classroom. Some of Koberger's other classmates told the statesman that he talked down to LGBTQ people, those who are in a marginalized community, those who were disabled, and women. Disturbing stuff to hear. The classmates also shared that Koberger believed in traditional marriage and got visibly upset when a colleague hung a pride ally flag on their office door. So I'm assuming this other person was also a teaching assistant who shared the office with Koberger. Let's assume Brian Koberger really did talk down to all these people. To me, this points to him thinking it's okay to be disrespectful to these groups of people and to him being prejudiced against them. That got me thinking about how this crime in Moscow is, at its core, a hate crime. I know we talked about the perpetrator being a potential incel or involuntary celibate, 
but I guess I never put two and two together about that really falling under the category of a hate crime, hatred of females, particularly pretty females who don't want to hang out with him. Let's say Koberger is the perpetrator of the crime, as the Moscow police believe he is. What if law enforcement hadn't caught him and had no clue who he was? Is he someone who maybe would do this type of thing again? We've all wondered about that. And if the answer is yes, would he have branched out from female victims to other types of victims, maybe people who are from the LGBTQ community, maybe people who are physically or intellectually challenged. It's a scary thought. If Koberger lands in the big house, he better adjust his attitude and how he speaks to other people, because I'm pretty sure there are members of these minorities in there who would love to set him straight. Moving on to more news surrounding the case, some of the victim's family members are concerned about the crime scene house at 1122 King Road being demolished, fearing that if the jury wants to visit the scene, they won't be able to. The victim's families were all sent a letter from the acting general counsel for the University of Idaho inviting them to retrieve their loved one's belongings prior to the demolition of the house. Allow me to share part of that letter with you. I'm not going to read the whole letter to you because it's rather long. If you want to read it, the full letter is on my community page. Here goes. I'm the acting general counsel for the University of Idaho and oversee the legal services for the university. I first want to express my condolences to each of you for the tragic loss you have suffered. I greatly appreciate the positive manner in which you have interacted with the university in the aftermath of this tragedy. I'm writing to communicate to each of you regarding the university's plans for the house at 1122 King Road, as was conveyed to you by the Dean of Students, Blaine Eccles, the homeowner gifted the house to the university with the intent that it be demolished. Before doing so, we will complete remediation within the house to address biohazards and chemical hazards that exist as a result of the crime and ensuing evidence. At the completion of the remediation, we intend to have the remediation team gather any items of personal property that do not appear to be contaminated and transfer them to the university personnel who will take these items to a secure off-site location for representative members of the families to review and recover items of your family members that you wish to keep. Items not selected will then be properly disposed of. This will not apply to large bulky items such as sofas, beds, or the like to the extent that any remain on site. If you have specific items you wish to be on the lookout for, regardless of size, please let me know. If we can locate and retain them for you, we will. End quote. Can you imagine how the families must feel about their loved ones' belongings 
being inside that house, my first thought is, don't take any of that stuff. Just walk away. But I'm not a family member, and I'm sure they will want to see what's there, and they're going to want to take whatever has meaning to them. Sadly, this is yet another painful emotional hurdle for the families. The legal battle for justice is going to be another one, one that is incredibly long and emotional, like a marathon. Let's hope they get justice, and let's hope that when they do, they will be able to heal as much as they can. I don't think anyone can ever fully get over such an event and also the loss of a child. As for what will happen to the property once that notorious house is demolished, the university is saying that a memorial and garden will be established in its place, which I think is the only possible option, turning it into something peaceful and beautiful, denies the perpetrator any sick pleasure of knowing others will look at the house and shudder. The other news is that Kaylee Gonsalves' family has been working on some t-shirts. They say the t-shirts are for themselves and their friends, and the t-shirts will be in support of the new Idaho House Bill number 186. That's the bill asking to bring back firing squads in death penalty cases when lethal injections are not available. Here's what the Gonsalves family wrote on their family Facebook page. This is by no means a sales post or anything like that. We are only making these for our own family. This is our therapy. We have been working on some shirts for the family and friends. This is a first draft. Any ideas or opinions? Let us know what you think, end quote. Clearly, the Gonsalveses want Brian Koberger, if convicted, to die. And they either prefer this new form of execution to a lethal injection, or they just want to make sure that if an injection is not available, then there is a second option. Most victims' families are not going to want a perpetrator who's been sentenced to this ultimate punishment to sit on death row for the rest of his or her life, and who could blame them. I wonder, though, if the perpetrator would find a lifetime behind bars where he has to fear for his life each and every second a more painful punishment. I know that life in prison is something that prisoners can get used to, and it could be argued that it's not so bad, because you get a bed, three meals, access to books, access to a gym and an outdoor recreation area, the ability to talk to and visit with family and friends. But we have to remember that if Koberger is found guilty and is put in prison, he will forever have a target on his back for harming Kaylee, Madison, Zana, and Ethan. Yes, he'll be able to watch TV, but he's also going to have to watch his back. Even the guards inside prison can be bribed to maybe leave the cell door unlocked one night or to walk away while Koberger is in the shower. To me, 
fearing you're going to be done in at any moment is a greater punishment than facing weapons that can get the job done in mere seconds. After musing about Koberger's alleged disrespect for people who are LGBTQ, I started thinking about whether or not people of this community are often targets of crime. And I found an article that talked about a study that was done to see if the LGBTQ community and gender minorities are disproportionately affected by crime. The study, which was published in Science Advances, found that people who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, queer, or gender nonconforming are nearly four times as likely to be victims of violent crime than those outside such communities. Per the study, sexual and gender minorities experienced a rate of 71.1 violent victimizations per 1,000 persons a year, compared with 19.2 per 1,000 a year among non-sexual and gender minorities. That is scary, especially for anyone who is LGBTQ. This study led to another shocking finding, and it had to do with who is victimizing these people. The researchers found that these populations are more likely to be victimized by someone they know well than a person who is also a non-sexual gender minority. Put more simply, the victims were more often than not victimized by people they know and family members than by strangers or other people who also belong to the LGBTQ community. So this means the attackers were often their partners, their friends, and their family members, as opposed to strangers. The article then talked about a survey of more than 12,000 LGBTQ teens around the country, released in 2018 by the Human Rights Campaign. The Human Rights Campaign, or HRC, is a national organization that advocates for the LGBTQ community. The survey found that 67% of LGBTQ teens reported hearing their own family members make negative comments about LGBTQ people and transgender people. Did you hear that? That was my cat. He wants to come in. I apologize. He likes to edit with me. And transgender people seem to be the ones who are most vulnerable of all. Tori Cooper, who works for the HRC, said this, transgender people are particularly vulnerable, especially by partners or people close to them, end quote. The article went on to say that the HRC documented the killings of at least 30 transgender or non-gender conforming people in 2020 alone. That's 30 too many. The majority of these victims were Black and Latina transgender women. In addition, the study found that sexual and gender minorities 
are burglarized at twice the rate of other households and that they're more likely to be victims of other types of property theft as well. We got to do better as a society. This is unacceptable. I'm someone who believes in tolerance and in celebrating people as they are. It takes courage to live your life as you want to. You shouldn't have to fear that being your authentic self puts you at greater risk of being harmed or killed or burglarized. Koberger, if he is anti-LGBTQ, and if he does get convicted of the crime, he better keep his mouth shut and he better speak respectfully. Just saying. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Hey, smash that like button. Subscribe to my channel. Let's grow this thing. Consider a membership. See you next time.